to today's program of the Workforce Show, and I am very honored to have Dr. Alan Merton, President Emeritus of George Mason University in Fairfax County, Virginia, as my guest. Uh, welcome, Dr. Merton. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. One of the uh, the reasons I'm so pleased that Dr. Merton is joining us is because he has uh, he has worked in the field of higher education, but for many years, but I watched him or observed him, I think that's probably the more politically correct way of describing it, observed him uh, from the beginning of his tenure at George Mason University to when he retired. And during that period of time, I've heard him speak many times on the subject of workforce and workforce-related topics. And I saw him grow what I didn't even know existed, actually, other than a small little campus college, which started off as a an annex of UVA, University of Virginia, to something that is considered a powerhouse. And I kind of would like Dr. Merton to describe how he did that. But, but before he does, uh, let me uh, kind of brief you, listeners, on what we're going to be talking about today and, and a little bit of background about Dr. Merton. Uh, first of all, Dr. Merton is a um, math major, uh, computer science graduate student, a PhD in computer science, um, and a obviously a strong political and business person. <laughs> Would you put all that together uh, under one? It's, it's one a strange. It's a strange umbrella. Strange umbrella. Well, for those of you listening who might know, uh, the Smithsonian has just hired a new head of executive director or president of the Smithsonian, and this person comes from out of Cornell University, where uh, you were before you came yes. to Washington, correct? Yes, so, I was. I was, at, I was the dean of the business school at Cornell. So I don't know if they do up there, but uh, we're hoping that uh, it's magic dust that uh, continues to grow Smithsonian. So first of all, in those uh, you, you retired when from George? About a little over a year and a half ago. I was president for 16 years. Uh, I had been a business school dean for 10 years before that, and uh, I, uh, I after 16 years as president, I decided that there was other things. That were too, ma- too many, too many uh, long days. Uh, I used to. F- I remind university presidents that when university president, for the in the evening you might have cocktails one place, salad another, main course another, and dessert another. We call those progressive dinners in my, yes, right. in my genre. You know, well, whatever it took, you did it because, and I I know you mentioned to me that one of the things it took was really glad handing and shaking hands and knowing personally every elected official who had any control over any money yes. that would go to the mission. Is that true? Oh, yeah. I, I, I always very strongly in a couple of things. I always strongly believe that people people wanted to get to know you, that, that people don't give money to organizations, they give money to people. And so I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I was I I was out and about the people now kid me they say that there was when the early days of my presidency sometimes they'd have three meals a day with me breakfast lunch and dinner and because I I I felt that was extremely important as George Mason as a young institution that I had to be to come to face of the university and it it worked we did it by being entrepreneurial taking advantage of where we were build on our strengths and market ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, by the way, folks, he is not overweight, so uh, he must have been eating diet food through all those meetings. <laughs> but having said that, 
You, this is a great segue into one of the two topics we really want to focus on today, and that is the role of higher ed. And then we want to spend time where you have a lot of background, knowledge, and experience in the whole area of technology transfer. But first of all, uh, back to to growing George Mason. George Mason, as a stepchild of UVA, I think had a unique position. It, maybe it was a handicap because UVA is, considered one of, uh, if not, uh, next to William Mary, uh, Virginia's elite private four-year colleges. And George Mason, uh, as initially, at least I think this is true, the sense of it was that it was the people's college. And that if you were a resident of Virginia and you graduated from high school, you would get into George Mason and you would be able to graduate with a degree and, and enter a profession. Uh, what what do you think the perception of George Mason has been and has changed and where where do you see it now? Well, one of the things that I think that we, we've done a very good job of branding the university, George Mason is known for being innovative and entrepreneurial. Uh, over the last several years when U.S. News and World Report would ask university presidents What's the most innovative and up-and-coming and entrepreneurial universities in the country? George Mason always was either number one, two, or three. So I think one we were learned, we were respected for taking risks and for making things happen. But I think also we were we were known for building on the strengths of the community. I made the statement early on in my presidency that at George Mason we shouldn't try to be excellent in anything that that doesn't either directly draw upon or contribute to the greater Washington area. So we designed programs for the area, and we designed programs that took advantage of the area. And hmm. I think that's still much of where we are. Now, it's it's changed in many respects, because when I, when I first came for the freshman class, we'd have about 6,000 applicants for 3,500 seats. When I left, we had 16,000 applicants. So we, we, we got to the point of being harder to get in, and that caused some uh, emotional stress in, in the community. But we, we learned how to we, – we built the university that took advantage of so many things. Uh, and we had strong relationships with the North Virginia Community College, strong relationships with the public school system. So we really – we believe strongly and still do in the relationships that you can build here in the greater Washington area. So the local educational uh, community landscape is a feeder team, if you will, <laughs> Since we're in the baseball capital, we're going to be in the baseball capital of the world. Uh, but the uh, the fact of the matter is, these people who who are from the local area, because you you reference that being a high priority for you, are drawn into George Mason. Well, we also found that it was important that we build facilities that could not only be used by us, but be used by the community, and, and that 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 had a major impact on what we were doing. We also felt strongly that we had to build relationships with the companies. That we were, we we thought we were in the teaching business when I first came, and then we realized we were in the learning business. We were in the business of helping people learn. It may be in a formal class, it may be some other way. We also, secondly, we found that we had to do more research, not just research for for the academic purposes, but research that related to specific problems that people in the community were dealing with. So we became strong at that, and then we became a community. We became driven by the community and a driver of the community, 
And I think every time we would do that, we went through a period of time where we were growing so fast that we thought the quality would go down. But what happened mm-hmm. is the faster we grew, the quality went up. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting. Well, I know you recruited a lot of very high-profile, highly respected faculty out of local uh, universities. Uh, right. And national high. universities, yeah. <laughs> national universities as well. But that is interesting because what you're describing is, in a way, starting off as, with a perspective of almost a, an adult community college, you know, more traditional community college in a four-year uh, a four-year model, and yet it's so much more than that because, as you say, it not, it started off thinking about the community, but I know your programs are attended uh, by people from all over the world. You have a very large uh uh, pop- uh, national population who attend. We have we have students from over 140 countries. Uh, in and when right. you walk around on campus, you uh, you hear any language you want to hear, you will get to hear. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's all. We also did something that we originally used to be called that we were a non-traditional university because we had students of a variety of ages, and then we had faculty somewhere. The tenured or tenure tracked and some were adjuncts and mm-hmm. what we realized after a while that that was our strength the strength was in the the wide range of ages and experience of the student and the strong faculty some of whom were traditional faculty but some were non-traditional i find when i talk to an alum and i'll talk about what are some of your favorite faculty they're more they could be just as likely to tell me about an adjunct who taught one class for us versus a full professor who, mm-hmm. who taught multiple classes but this this diversity of students and diversity of faculty helped us tremendously. You know, uh, this is a, an important point because one of the things that I don't know that Virginia has, correct me if I'm wrong, they don't have like a Penn State or University of Maryland, which is their, you know, their public university, large university. Is is George Mason becoming that? Well, what I think what you what you have in Virginia, first of all, you have very strong public system of of, of higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned UVA, William and Mary, um, James Madison, George Mason, VCU, ODU. ODU. So we so we so we have we have strong mm-hmm. public institutions. We don't have and they're and they're large. We don't have large privates like they do in some states. I think what I found one of the things I enjoyed most about being president is. The, the institutions, the four-year institutions of higher education, compete with the, against each other and cooperate with each other, and that was just very natural. Um, mm-hmm. So what you have in Virginia is you have very strong public institutions. Uh, George Mason is now the largest of the public institutions. It, we grew from about 21,000 when I came uh, in in '96 to uh, 34,000 when I left in. Uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. So we, we grew. We grew. Now we, we also we grew in terms of we had uh, we had beds on campus for slightly less than 2,000 when I came and when I left we had beds for 6,000. Mm-hmm. So we became as much a residential college as anybody was. Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about cooperation, and you also mentioned in an earlier conversation how you know each college has its own footprint. It has its own. Uh, priorities, its own reputation, its own issues, but we are uh, we're a program that primarily addresses regional issues, and uh, that is uh, you know that in education it includes Maryland, includes DC, includes Virginia, and probably Delaware as well. 
do you, as four-year public institutions, cooperate uh, in in areas where you compete? And who do you compete most with? Because uh, I know well, the publicly funded schools are 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 in a much better position than private four-year colleges today, and then the highest growth is in electronic e-learning kinds of things. So how do you cooperate and how do you compete? Well, I think that you, you cooperate and you compete both for faculty and for students. You um, you and 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 for funds in some cases. I mean, you in 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 Washington D.C. area there is the consortium of the universities of the Washington metropolitan area, which George Mason is a member of. Uh, I used to work with the university presidents from the other schools, particularly the other two, George Washington and Georgetown, but the American. Oh, it's public and private. It's not just public and private. Got it. Okay. In the consortium, and and then. Then there's the Virginia Council of Presidents that we participated in, where we would meet once a month with the presidents of all the public institutions. So you, 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 in, 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 in some sense, you, you, you had, you had colleagues uh, in other institutions. Now we were just, we were growing so fast that I think sometimes it was hard for people to quite somewhat understand what we were doing. We became the largest institution in Virginia just by by growing when the state provided money but we also decided that we would grow even when the state didn't give us the money uh we uh, we felt it was important to get the size of the institution to to be what what we got it to because we we could see what was going to happen with the population trends uh and also we we found that as we 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 had, we had such a mix of students, we have three campuses: one in Arlington, one in Prince William, and one in Fairfax. And those three campuses started to draw on the local areas around them, as well as those three campuses co- uh, cooperated with each other. Mm-hmm. So, having said that, what is the what is the situation today of when you talk about cooperating in your, these different groups of uh, collaborative? Schools, is there not a growing, I want to say discord, but confusion about the role of public funding in education, the the advantage or disadvantage that public education has uh, with private institutions, and as I mentioned earlier, some of the four-year colleges, private four-year colleges are uh, suffering some severe, significant financial well, you, you, you really you have you, you have three different. I think, relatively speaking, you have three different kinds of institutions. You have the public institutions, and under the publics, you've got four year and two years. You have the four year institution and the community college. Then you have the private institutions. If you look, or you know, like places like Cornell and and in the University of Richmond and others. So you have you have the publics, you have the privates, and you also have the private sector universities. The DeVry and Kaplan and others like that. So there's there's a there's a demand for for all three. I think. And do you from, also have? Let me just ask you this real quick. Sure. Do you also have is is the fourth category the entrepreneur type of education? You mentioned private maybe falls under that. Well, the the, the private and all the rest of it. Yeah, the private for profits uh, like DeVry and Kaplan. That's that's what. They would they would fund this category where they're 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 called private sector. They're private universities and colleges, and then there's what's now called private sector. These are the the private universities are usually they're standalone institutions. Uh, the the private sector universities are some of these. They can be there's a whole variety of them. They can be two year. They can be four year. They can be a whole variety of activities. Uh, so there's there's more and more. 
choice uh, available. I think the groups, from a personal point of view, the institutions that are going to have trouble in the future are the small privates. Uh, then you also have enormous differences between institutions that are in metropolitan areas. They can draw upon things that people in the non-metropolitan areas can't draw upon, and that makes it difficult. So running institutions of higher education today is is very difficult. When I came to Mason, we had a budget of about $220 million a year. When I left, we had a budget of $880 million a year. Mm-hmm. So it's it's running a business, and, and I think a lot of – but how do you judge the success of these businesses? You know the differences and the similarities. Well, I think what you 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 judge the success by the success of its graduates. Uh, what happens to the students? In 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 some institutions, in in some of the privates and some of the publics, you you also can judge the institutions by the what comes out of their research activities. Uh, so it's a combination of the student is a. The student is a product of the education system, but the research is also, in some cases, a product of the educational institution. And we're going to talk about that because we're going to talk about technology transfer and the role of higher ed and the role of of these research and, I guess, non-research institutions in in that field. But in in fact, uh, you know, one of the the big, I think, one of the big problems for non-drums of of education, traditional education is that you know, when we are balancing what you just said in describing the purpose of education to statistics. You know, we are as a country supposedly, you know, in low to middle range in terms of our academic accomplishments, our preparing people for careers in the future of sciences, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? Well, I, I I think with respect to technology, I've 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 strongly believe that we need to do a much better job in our K twelve system in exposing uh, young people to information technology and technology belong. I mean, we, I mean, I'm I'm a strong believer in us developing the the STEM discipline, science, technology, engineering, and math discipline, and and and, and, and graduating people who go to work in those areas. But I'm even stronger believer in that no matter what what someone's interested in, whatever whatever topics it be in the liberal arts or the med, med, medical or whatever it is, they have to acquire a much better understanding of technology. Not that they're going to have a career in technology, but that they're aware of technology. And I think we've done a pretty poor job of that. We we don't, in K-12, emphasize exposing people to technology no matter what their interests are. I think also we've, we have in this country... We 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 have we have every once in a while battles between people who say that we need to spend more time and effort developing the STEM activities in our institutions at K-12 and beyond, and, and some will say no. What we need to do is incre- is increase the number of immigrants that come in and in those areas. My approach has always been we need to do both. We need to develop more of our own skills in science, technology, engineering, and math, but we we need to have a much more a robust immigration policy. About uh, several years ago, 10 years ago, I chaired a committee for the National Academies on the future of the information technology workforce. And one of the things we came out with that is a need to have a more open immigration policy to bring people from around the world to the United States that can help us with our science, technology, and and bring people who come here for education, do what's necessary to keep them here as opposed to sending them home. 
sending them home. And there are lots of stories of uh, really gifted students who come here to school who get their permanent visas, uh, and they've waited. They, you know, they've applied through all the correct channels, and it's taking them forever. So, uh, before even reforming immigration, we got to get the infrastructure down so people don't have to wait. But having well, well, I, I always felt that what, you, what we jokingly used to say that when you hand out the diplomas to people in science, technology, engineering, math, you should staple a green card to them. <laughs> well, that is it. a controversial comment. We'll come back to that, especially in, in the leadership and the senior leadership roles. But the but you're you you you're talking about careers in the sciences. But what about just an educated America American? Are we educated? I mean, is are schools educating us? Are we able to read? Able to write? Able to do mathematics? Well, I, I think I think yeah, I think we've got a very a wide range of quality. There, you know, I have some strong views. And people say, well, how can we have such a strong higher education system in this country, and maybe a weaker and a weaker K twelve system? I think there's there's a variety of reasons, and it can be oversimplified. I've always found in higher education, one, the fact that we compete, we compete with each other, makes us better. Secondly, that we reward people based on the performance, not just on the number of years on the job like they do in some of the sectors of K-12. And third, that what we do is we, we have to pay people differently depending upon their expertise, where mm -hmm. in too many in the K-12 systems, all the faculty with a certain number of years in grade all get paid the same amount. Well, when, when as, as a business school dean and as a university president, I found ourselves in a situation we'd have to pay we had to pay the engineers more than we had to pay the English faculty. And it, it, it was just, there were market forces. So I think we have many more market forces available, utilized in, in higher education than we have in K-12. And I think sometimes that's the, that that limits the success of our K-12 systems. Uh, we, we also, I think one of the things that I keep on bumping into is that in our K-12 system, we have people teaching science, science, technology, engineering, and math who are not trained in those areas. They're trained in something else. And so we, we, we have them um, teaching in science, technology, engineering, and math, and they don't have the background to be teaching, which is, which is a real shame. It's interesting. Um, I, I have a, a specific question to ask you, which will lead us into the further discussion of STEM and technology innovation and universities, but with, but you just said something that resonated with me. I know uh, DC is becoming a magnet for gifted teachers in the K through 12 because DC has uh, probably the most lucrative salary compensation system, and yet I know somebody who was a gifted person, knowledge based, but he didn't get the uh, the uh, he, he wasn't being particularly political, so he didn't get the high ratings that would give him, you know, a, a, a competitive start to others who want to come into the system. So he was moved to a different school. So you know, it, it's not just rewarding and paying; it's having systems that really recognize or recognize teachers. Or do teachers have to be just nice? Do they do teachers no, I, do I, students have to you know, give? Do we care what teachers say? Well, I, I, I found I found it always strange when people would say, well, you know, we in K twelve we can't we can't give we can't we can't have give merit raises because we can't tell if someone is better than someone else. And I found that argument very disgusting. I mean, in in higher education, we 
we pay faculty based in many factors, but one of them is merit. Are they are they good teachers? Are they good researchers? And it's hard it's hard to judge if they're good teachers or good researchers, but you have to do it. And I think I think the K twelve system all of a sudden often throws its hands up in the air and said it's hard to evaluate. Therefore, we'll treat everyone similarly. Well, that's that's sending all the wrong signals. So mm-hmm. I, I'm much more of a believer in you know. Evaluating people is hard, but you got to do it. You got to do it in education, just like you do it in any other area. And also, I think personally, uh, although I have no basis for saying this, that I think we put too much emphasis on personality versus uh, the knowledge and skills that person brings. Because they have this knowledge and skills, they should be able to be taught how to teach. All right, last question before we go into technology. Do you think a uh, an institution, four year public or private, primary role is to train people for jobs and careers. No, I, I think you have a you have a dual responsibility. I mean, first of all, first of all, in higher education, you you got things to do besides teaching, and, and so you take the, let's separate the research up. But with respect to teaching, your responsibilities are teaching someone for the next job, but also you're you're teaching them for life. You're trying to make them good, better citizens, as as well as making them better employers, employees. So I, I think you have to do both, and you can do both. You can do both in two different classes, but you can do both in the same class. You can be teaching someone something that they can use today and tomorrow, but also teaching them how to learn something so they can get to the better ten years, twelve years from now. So I, I think we, you, not only can you do both, but you have to do both. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's it's cop out when people say, well, you know, we we can only provide we can only prepare people for careers, or we can prepare people for life. We have to pick. No, we don't. We can do them both. It's hard. I'm so glad to hear. It's, it's hard, but I am so glad that you said that because, quite honestly, I, I question some of the public pronouncements that people should just get a uh, you know a certificate or training in a skill set versus a learning set. You know, you talked about learning. You know, it is a learning process and an evolving process. Well, one of the areas where there is no question that the best and the brightest perform, and that's in your university research centers. And uh, and we have seen how innovation technology has have, you know, has been the primary engine growing uh, American economy you know, forever. Uh, but this whole issue of technology transfer and the role of the universities in public-private Sector partnerships. What is your take on all of this? Where do you see it going? Well, I think you, you ha- we have to begin by recognizing how much of our innovation and how much of our economy in this country has been has been driven by technology. So there's so many things that have happened in terms of our quality of life in in this country are because of innovation and because of technology. So we just got to be honest with ourselves, saying. You know, and and it's 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 hard work and it, it's paid off. So the question is, if we want to continue to prosper as a country, or as, or in some cases as communities, we're going to have to keep the, keep that innovative and technological orientation. Uh, and you, you have to do it. It's hard. I mean, I I've, you know, I've been accused of making statements that say one reason we so many people drop out of technology programs is because it's too hard for them. Tech, learning technology and being able to use it is, is hard work, but I, I think if we recognize that we've needed it to get to where we are and we need it to continue to get ahead, we'll invest in it. But I uh, also, as I commented briefly before, is that we we have to recognize that it's not just technology for the technologists. Uh, 
we need to be teaching and exposing people to technology no matter what they do. And if we do that... So why is it hard for universities, though? Why... You know, well, see, first of all, first right of all, it's, exp it's expensive. I mean, I think if if you look at what does it cost you, what does it cost to um, bring a full professor in in engineering or a full professor in computer science or a social professor or a system professor? Very, very expensive. If you look at what does it cost to run a class in, uh, in computer science versus to run a class in English. The technology that you have to have is massively more expensive. So, so if you if you, you got to be careful that you're 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 not letting you know you're you're not just educating people because it's cheap for you to educate. You got to educate people because they're needed, and it's very exp you know expensive. I mean, one of one of my favorites is is that if you, the cost of educating a nurse is massive the cost because of the technology and the the low student faculty ratio you can have very few you, know, you can have very few students handled by an individual faculty where if you're going to some other disciplines you have a very high student faculty ratio you can have a lot of students handled by an individual faculty member so education in wow. the technology is expensive Okay, but question for you. Uh, you're talking about teaching. You're talking about a faculty person in a in a teaching role. Is, is are all research people? Where I mean, the federal. I understand. Correct me if I'm wrong. That the federal government has put on, on an annual basis puts about 140 billion dollars into research. Much yeah, I don't. I don't know the numbers. I, I I think what's what's happened on the research side. First of all, not all institutions of higher education are going to be doing research, and not all faculty are going to be doing research. So you have, so when you look at the institutions and you look at the um, uh, faculty, you find some have have a research mission and some don't. Mm -hmm. I, I, throughout my career, I've been in institutions that have had a research mission. Like the a federal hospital versus a non-teaching hospital. Yeah, yeah, and you know, yeah. and and if you if you look at the mm -hmm. um, over the years, the federal government used to be directly the major funder of research, the National Science Foundation, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Department Defense of Energy, Depart Department of Energy, all the, all the departments all were them, big yeah. funders of research. I think as they've cut back over the years, you have you have less dollars available to do the research mission that you have. If you the history of the United States is one where following or during the Second World War and then following the Second World War, we moved to an economy where research was going to be done by the universities. And that that really f f the research dollars came to the university uh for for many periods of time. Uh, and, and in a sense, the, in, the university was the engine of research, the engine of innovation. But I will tell you, it's hard to explain to a politician. First of all, if you look at U.S. Congress, the f we have very, very few scientists and engineers in the U.S. Congress. I, I won't give you the number that I have in mind because it's tiny and I don't want to be accused of being I'm wrong. I'm about to say something. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm about to say something that is going to be viewed as sarcastic, cynical. But we have very few people in Congress who have ever served in the military who are you know, declaring war or starting war. So you don't have to have been there to, to no, think. No, no, but it's, 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 it, there's an appreciation. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, it, it's a case that we, when we look at it, 
U.S. House, U.S. Senate. We see so few, as I said before, so few people who are scientists. They don't appreciate that. But the same thing applies when you go to lower levels of government. I had an experience during my last year as president of Mason. I was in Richmond talking to a state senator, and I was trying to lobby the state senator to be supportive of more state dollars going to fund research at at Virginia's research institutions. And he looked at me and he said, well, this is very nice, Dr. Murray, but he said, I can't do it. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because you can't predict the outcome. <laughs> and I thought, well, wait a minute. This is I just lost the argument because the whole concept of research is you can't predict the outcome. So if That's you don't, venture capitalists invest in it. You invest on the on the hope. You're right. Income, right. And it's it's so, so so in some sense, I think we've 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 in this country we've kind of gotten lazy with respect to research. That we we think we think the the good times will keep rolling because we've done things in the past. But you, you got to invest in research. You got to invest in researchers. You, the labs are expensive. It's. It, it just you know when when Mark Warner was governor of, of of Virginia during his last year, he set up a program that the universities could use to bring top-notch researchers to their universities, and we did it at Mason. And it's a the, we're spinning companies off of the work of these researchers. We're doing a lot of stuff. We just need to do we need more, but we need a we need That's a. Interesting. So let me let me make sure that everybody understands what you just said because I think it's a powerful comment commentary, if you will. One person, in this case, Mark Warner, uh, was uh, was he came out of. I mean, he was was an entrepreneur coming. That's where he, he was an entrepreneur, money. and I think he understood the importance of of, of funding uh, of, of of funding research. But right. you, you, we 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 hired people from different parts of the country that brought them to Virginia. That mm. they were they were brought because of the research, but what they were able to do after a while is do stuff that would spin some some companies off. That but would, you wouldn't that be would, able to do that if money hadn't been made available if, by the if, state, right? Yeah, right. And and there's also there's there there are times when I think in in Virginia we think of we're bringing all this the federal money in, but much of the federal money that comes into Virginia doesn't stay in Virginia. It doesn't get spent in Virginia. It gets spent by companies that are headquartered in Virginia, but it goes someplace else. But you uh-huh. need you need to um, you need you, we need, we need a much more research culture uh, in this country. We, I think we've lost it. As as the Cold War when the Cold War was around, we had sort of a a steady stream of research dollars to university. I think when the Cold War ended. We, you know, government took a deep breath and said, "Well, we don't need to do research anymore," and mm-hmm. they were wrong. Well, when we think of the things that have evolved, have come out of research, including the internet, including Google, <laughs> including Dell, sure. you know, sure. you know how, how short-sighted can that be? Well, can you, for us who aren't um, as knowledgeable as you, uh, putting it mildly, uh, for you know people as who who want to know, but we only have a limited capacity. Because yeah, we're all busy trying to make it in, in our own little world in a very tough time. How how would you take this conversation about the importance of research and the importance of technology and the importance of people and money being available to start that? How would you how would you trace that? How would you articulate the process that would occur if you had all that to the end where it would create jobs? Well, I, I I'd begin by saying that every citizen has the responsibility uh, 
to not to both support education, higher education, K twelve education, and demand success, de- demand excellence in these institutions. I mean, I think it's it's a do one way this one thing is to support, and the other is to demand quality. Uh, and I, I think if you begin with that, you, you create a, a culture that is that is uh, in, entwined with with education, and with the teaching and learning parts of education as well as the research. Is that well a demand or is that? Well, it's yeah. I I think what to what we need to do is to recognize that. Educa- you know, one thing that I found out over the years is when when I could get a group of faculty to work with a group of people from business, sparks would be generated. You know, you'd get you know the one group would 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 be uh, would educate the other group, and great things would happen. But we we too often we we view them as let's say the the academy versus the quote real world are separate from each other. You you bring them together. Uh, I. I enjoy nothing more than bringing people from the business or government community uh, into activities of the academy, because then you see, first of all, they they all they gain a respect for each other, and they, the the respect is based on that these people are pretty smart, or they're smarter than I thought they were. <laughs> are you talking about Are you talking about industry looking at inside the academia, or are you yeah, talking both about both ways, in- both both ways, both ways. Okay. I mean, they, right. it's, ama- it's amazing when they, the more they get to know what goes on in the other environment, the mm-hmm. more appreciative and more respectful they are, and the more good things that happen. I, yeah. I have found as a as a associate dean, then as a dean, then as a president, the sometimes my, most my biggest value was to bring two groups together: the the real world people, the corporate people, the business people, the politicians, and then on one side and the university faculty. The other, my, my biggest contribution was get them together and get out of their way. So the first thing is for all these people that you brought together to understand a common language and a common goal for what success would look like. If, if and even if it's even if the language isn't common, it's just a matter mm-hmm. of helping people learn from each other, have, have them learn that you know that education is important. My my father was a shoe repairman. He had two years of high school. His and my mother had four years of high school. Neither one of them had anything. Cl- and even mm-hmm. even close to going to college, but their their view was they were going to send me to college, and mm-hmm. and I went to, went to the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee for two years, and then the University of Wisconsin Madison for two years, but it was but education was the on ramp. My 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 father and mother worked hard so I could get an education in, in this country, where in 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 this country the education on ramp is to the best part of society and I think we it, it, it takes an investment we, we have to invest in our institutions but we also have to demand a lot from them and we have to demand a lot for families uh, oh, I, yeah. I, I, I we're going to have to continue that particular part of the conversation in a different uh, and in a different session because it is it, it can go on for hours and it can be very emotional but going back to the research piece if if all these people you've brought to the table understand that the you you, you can't do it unless you have bright people that you know that that right. we we've we touched on but but you also have to as you touched on as well make sure that people know it know it costs money you can't just wave a magic wand and it's necessary there is a return on investment to both the community and the country uh, for putting money into research 
And who has the amount of money that's needed to get it started? Then the federal government, right? Well, you, you, but you, you, you even in that, I mean, I, I, I think we in Virginia have been fortunate to have U.S. senators, at least over the last 18 years that I've been here, that uh, that really that that you could talk to about research. So when I would talk to John Warner, or talk to Mark Warner, or talk to Chuck Robb, or talk to Jim Webb, or Tim Kaine. You and George Allen, you 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 had people that were wanting to learn more about what research was, and they were they were they wanted to learn more about what they could do to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you need and the same thing with our members of the House. I think in Virginia, mm-hmm. we I, I always tell my Virginia friends that we're we have we have we've had better political leaders at, on the on the Hill in Virginia than maybe we deserve uh, <laughs> because they they understood. When we would ask them what was the research agenda, they would help us develop our research agenda to correspond with the federal researchers' agendas. So we were lucky. Mm-hmm. And they helped facilitate your identifying the sources of money and grants, yes, et cetera. Yes, exactly, exactly. So what is the role of the local uh, government, elected government? Is there a role for them? Are they well, I, I, in yeah, I, th- I would say pr- the first thing that pops to mind is the economic development authorities. Uh, they, they're the ones who are trying to bring companies to the area or trying to keep companies that are here here and I think they have there's a there's a relationship there that's got to exist between the economic development authority and the institutions of education be they k-12 or higher education I mean I I I've gone a couple of years ago I for several years in a row I'd go to a, a uh, an event put on by the Fairfax County public school system and the economic development councils of Fairfax County, and and to watch the business executives uh, support or to encourage the the faculty in Fairfax always made me feel good because that's the kind of stuff that makes a difference. Uh, mm-hmm. So 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 at even at, at the local at the local level, the mm-hmm. politicians have a t- tremendous responsibility to make sure, I mean people come when when pe- when people are going to accept we we're going to a point at here time people will make first a decision of where they want to live and then they make a decision as to where they want to work i think we in the greater washington area have done a relatively good job of creating school systems that would urge people to want to come here and once they come here, they then once they make a decision to come to Northern Virginia or suburban Maryland or the district, then they go and look for a job. Well, if there hadn't been a good school system, they'd have never looked at us. But still, uh, this area has a disproportionate number of highly educated people yeah. who who come here because it is you know the mecca for you know some very bright political people, et cetera. But at the local level, and I know this in because I I do a lot of I do a lot of programs that uh, bring together people at the local level as well as the state level. And in Maryland, for example, and in more rural areas, they the economic development folks are being challenged to get the uh, the elected officials to to provide them enough revenue uh, yeah. and and to understand the mission enough to support them. 
I mean, I, I, I can tell you three cases right off the top. And, and by the way, we will be – Jerry Gordon, who is the Director of Economic Development in Fairfax County that you just referenced, is going to be one of our guests. Uh, right. And so we'll build on this conversation with him. But we've had guests, Economic Development Directors uh, from Maryland, who are really, really frustrated because the elected officials don't seem to understand what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, when you're these kinds of issues with respect to economic development or with respect to education, mm-hmm. they're they're not they're not they're they're somewhat complex, and you got to spend time with politicians. You 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 know, and I, my approach to politicians, some of them are good friends. Are you, what you tell them on Monday, when Tuesday or Wednesday you're with them, you got to tell them again. There's they have so so many other so much demand on their mm-hmm. their senses their their that they forget things. So I think one of the mistakes we make. Oh, I said why? So we're all in the company here. Just you you just got to you got over and or I used to say that we used to say to them. Now I know as you remember, and then you'd go on, you'd repeat something you said two days earlier. Now you knew very well they didn't remember, but mm-hmm. you would say as I know you rem- how, that you remember. <laughs> Well, but still, okay, let's just say you've got this educated, this group of people educated, aware, and interested, but being educated, they also know that to take something from a laboratory in a research institution to uh, to take it to market to a place where they're going to be hiring uh, eight, you know, 20, 30, 50 people uh, takes, you know, there are different steps there, and so in some cases, for some products and services, it's and I think that you and I heard the same thing about pharmaceutical companies. It's millions of dollars to just get from the lab to the market, and sometimes seven more years, right? So oh, where's yeah. the? Yeah, how do you? So how do you? How do you make money? How do you create and support an economy uh, during that process? Who who puts the money into hiring? Who puts the money into developing and moving that product forward? Well, I've I've also also find is that you, you sometimes you got to start off by thinking small. Uh, you know, you, you pe- people are. If you're doing something at a at a micro level, and people can see that it's working, they're willing to invest in it at a much more macro level. And and I I think when I look at some of the successes that I've had is we we originally started slowly. You know, bring people along. Um, you know, the, the 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 make people feel a part of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's. I've I've always found that you know one of the most valuable things is when you have a proposal to do something you show it to members of whatever community you're talking about and it's got the word draft on it. There's mm-hmm. something about the word draft that people it says to the people they're interested in my ideas. And then and then when you um, you have some successes. Oh, so you're saying keep that word draft in it. Doesn't keep the word draft on as long as possible so that mm-hmm. people feel that they can be part of the process. Mm-hmm. And, and and then when you when you have some successes, celebrate the uh, Omer Hurst, who a state senator from the Alexandria area in Virginia, who's passed away several years ago. He used to, he taught me something early on after I got here. He says it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And and I think that's the mm-hmm. kind of attitude that you need to have an attitude that mm-hmm. that you um, you have some successes and you give other people credit for success. I. Mm-hmm. I, in the institutions I've had an impact on, the number of things that I've been fortunate to do is, is very heartwarming. But one of the things that I'm happy about is sometimes when someone else takes credit for it. 
<laughs> yeah, okay. and that is uh, you know that is important to put that ego aside because somewhere along the line you'll be working. On it. Well, we're about to run out of time on this particular conversation, but if I may uh, kind of pull some of this together, even in this last statement, you there is no question that uh, from from or the innovative society, the innovative technology society, it's really important that universities and their research hubs. Uh, uh, play a, uh, an important role and continue to, and that you're also, uh, correct me again if I'm wrong, uh, strongly believe that you have to build the partnerships. You have to sell whatever you're creating initially. You're, you're, you planted the seed. Now you have to engage the communities and you have to engage businesses, other businesses and investors, and taking that idea in partnership, the university perhaps, to the next level and funding it, correct? Yeah, I, and I think I would just add, maybe closing word, is that it's hard. I get asked, I got asked the question as I stepped down as president several years ago, what kept me going? And the, the, the three things that kept me going, still keep me going, are one, stamina. You just, these are, this, do the right things takes a lot of energy. You got to be healthy. Uh, second is you have to have a passion. You have to really believe in something. You can't just be doing it for the sake. And then the third, you got to care about people. Someone taught me a long time ago, people don't care about how much you know until they know about how much you care. And I think if you if you have if you have stamina and you have passion and you have a caring attitude, it's amazing what you can accomplish. But the passion and the caring, it it, it moves it forward. And the alternative is people who do it just for you know for all things that you said you you don't believe in public recognition without passion, etc. Well, we've had this fabulous conversation with Dr. Alan Merton, who is the President Emeritus of George Mason University and currently consulting and on many boards so he can influence many people along the way um, and who himself comes from a technology background and who has a very strong business orientation as witnessed in how he grew George Mason University. And so having talked earlier in that conversation about the importance of, of education, the importance of four-year colleges, uh, and both public and private, in spurring uh, innovation, not just technical, but in spurring a, uh, a, a you use the term learning. We're not an edu- not education, but a learning. Yeah, I mean, do you want to wrap up could, with that comment? Yeah, I think it's a good place to end. You, you, people have to. We can educate people, but we we're really not educating them unless they learn. Unless they learn, so you have to have a passion for help, for learning. So it's a partnership in both learning. Well, Dr. Merton, I really hope you will join us again to continue this conversation. You've raised a lot of important issues that. We as individuals, we as communities, we as elected officials, we as a, may I use that example, the metaphor of a village uh, team, if you will, uh, need to come together and understand each other's roles. So thank you so much for being with us today. This is the Workforce Show, and this is Cindy Gern, your host. Thank you. Look forward to talking to you again.